When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we return to the story of Samuel. Help us to see that it's not just an ancient story about an ancient people that seems so far removed from us. But Lord, this is the story of our own lives too, the challenges and the temptations that we face, the opportunities that we have to rededicate ourselves to obedience and discipleship. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, particularly how Christ is our hope. It's in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Our sermon title this morning comes from the great Yogi Berra. The uh, baseball hall of famer was famous for what they called his yogi-isms, the different kind of turns of phrase that he had. One was, it ain't over till it's over. Well, no duh, right? Uh, Yeah. You can observe a lot by watching he said. A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. I know the coffee hasn't quite kicked in yet, so. uh. And of course, our title this morning, it's like deja vu all over again. It's apt because this story is nearly identical to the story of Eli and his sons. Samuel is no longer the little boy that was dedicated to serve in the temple by his mother, nor is he the great leader that we last saw in chapter 7, rallying Israel in the face of the Philistines. No, now he is old, old like Eli was when we were first introduced to Eli at the beginning of this book. Samuel is the recognized religious leader of Israel, just as Eli was. Samuel has appointed his sons to serve as judges, to succeed him in ministry, just like Eli had appointed his sons to serve as priests. But both sets of sons are corrupt. Eli's sons, you'll remember, They stole from the sacrifices. They stole the meat from the sacrifices. And even worse, they had sex with the women who served there at the tabernacle, probably abusing their position of power. Samuel's sons, we read here in chapter 8, took bribes. They also perverted justice. They were into the ministry for their own personal gain. It's like deja vu all over again. In verse 4, the elders of Israel offer a solution to what seems to be a perennial problem for Israel. Now, before we get to their solution, I want you to remember who these elders of Israel are. 
Uh, we remember them back in chapter 4, verse 3, as the really bright guys who had the great idea to bring the ark of the Lord into battle against the Philistines, where it was subsequently captured. So I'm not really super confident in their judgment. So when they come to Samuel and they begin explaining to him the problem, I think we need to hear them out, but their solution doesn't seem to make much sense. Verse 5, we need a king. We need a king just like all the other nations. So let's make sure that we can wrap our heads around this. Eli was in charge, but he had sons who were wicked and they couldn't succeed him. Samuel's in charge, but he has sons who are wicked and they can't succeed him. So the answer is to set up a new regime based on a hereditary principle. Is that actually really going to work? What a novel concept. Give us a king that will judge us, they demand of Samuel. Would that it would be that easy, right? Would that all of us could pin our hopes on a person or a process, a principle, or a government to save us. The reality is much messier, as we'll discover next week. But this week, I want to focus on this strange thing that we see both with Eli's sons and now with Samuel's sons. What's going on there? Why don't we see faithfulness in the succeeding generations? The main thing that I want to try to get across to you this morning is this. Each generation must choose the Lord. Each generation must choose the Lord. Now, there are many examples in Scripture of the faith being passed down, of one generation succeeding another and remaining faithful to the Lord. But sadly, these verses also demonstrate to us that the opposite can be true. Instead of generations of faithfulness, here in 1 Samuel, we see that the second generation turns against the faith of their father. It's what we saw with Eli and his sons, and here we see it with Samuel and his sons. Now what's interesting about both these sets of boys is that they kept a form of their father's religion. They didn't completely deny the God of Israel. They didn't suddenly become worshipers of Canaanite gods. No, they were in the ministry. They kept the form of the religion, but they twisted it to their own purposes. Instead of outright denying God, they used God for their own benefit. And I think from Eli's boys and from Samuel's sons, we see a picture of what other religious sociologists have noticed in the church for decades. The first generation believes, the second generation assumes, 
and the third generation denies. A tendency among believers to fall into this cycle. The first generation believes, the second generation assumes, the third generation denies. But each generation must dedicate themselves to renewing their faith in God, to trusting in Christ for themselves, not relying on their parents or their grandparents. They must choose themselves to walk in faithful discipleship after Jesus. Now, if you're in junior high or high school this morning, I think sometimes maybe in sermons, if you're like my kids are, were, sometimes look over and one of them's completely asleep. Or you can kind of zone out. This morning I want to talk to you very particularly. If you're a junior high or high school student, that age range, let me speak directly to you. You're here this morning in part because God has blessed you with a Christian home and a Christian community. You've been baptized. You're active in Sunday school. But a time is quickly coming, more quickly than your parents realize, a time is quickly coming when you will leave home. And when you leave home, the danger isn't that you will fall into outright denial. The danger is that you will begin to assume the gospel. That you will assume what your parents have taught you. Now, as you grow up, you're going to make your own choices. Your parents aren't always going to be there to direct your steps. You're going to face temptation without a strong support structure around you that can pick you up when you fall down. The danger is that you will keep a form of your parents' religion, but you'll twist it. You'll twist it so that you only turn to it when it's a benefit to you. See, Eli's sons and Samuel's sons, oh man, their sin is obvious. They were using God for their own benefit, but we tend to do the same thing, but maybe in less obvious ways. We turn to God when we think it will help us, but otherwise God is safely distant from us. Maybe like many young people, you'll get into a habit where you stop going to church for a season. And in your mind, you'll rationalize it. You'll say, well, you know, I'll get back to it someday. Or your faith, instead of being even a, a small bright shining light, it, it, it begins to kind of smolder. And you think, well, one day I'll fan that back into a bright flame. Someday. Later. At some point in the future, that will be true of me. But guys, if you simply assume the good news of Jesus, 
If you don't make your own choices to follow Jesus, then you and the generations that will follow you are on their way to outright denial. Moms and dads, the Bible does not guarantee that our children will believe. We baptize them because they are part of the covenant community. We disciple them. We teach them to call God their Father. Coming up and professing their faith, eating and drinking at the Lord's table, that is their birthright. But grace is not hereditary. Our children must trust the Lord themselves. And that's not something you can control. But you can be an influence. Dads, do your children hear you sing on Sunday? Do they watch you bow the knee before King Jesus? Do they see you search the Scriptures for answers to pressing questions for your family? Are your decisions as a family made with Christ at the center? For decades, religious sociologists have told us that the faith of succeeding generations is often greatly influenced not necessarily by the faith of the mother, but by the strong faith of the Father. Are you using your influence in your families? Or are you simply assuming the gospel? Are your homes places where gratitude, celebration, joy, and affection are the foundation for what it means to obey God and trust in Jesus. When your children think of their religious heritage and what it means to belong to Christ, is that a joyful thing for them? Or is it full of duty and obligation? Moms and dads, as your children grow up to be adults, your relationship necessarily changes. And I'll tell you what, I get lots of people in my office who have real struggles with their parents because their parents didn't actually change their relationship with them as they got older. They pretend, even as their children are adults, that they have control over them. Your relationship will change. But don't be afraid to press in here. Find natural moments in your relationship with your adult children to testify not to their need of Jesus, but to your ongoing need of Jesus. That you need forgiveness. That you need His grace. When your adult child does something that worries you, don't simply point to their behavior. Ask them penetrating questions about their beliefs. If they express doubt or questions about the faith, be the person they want to talk to, not the person 
they're afraid to talk to. And that means that some of us need to relearn some phrases. I don't know. That's a good question. Let's find that out together. Folks, pat answers to hard questions don't reinforce belief. They pave the way to apostasy. This cycle of believing, then assuming, then denying, doesn't just take place over generations. Sometimes it can take place in one lifetime. Maybe some of you here this morning can look back on a time in your life when you were far more passionate about Christ than you are today. But your faith has settled in. And maybe you're assuming the gospel. You've kept a form of the religion like Samuel's sons, but it's being twisted to your own advantage. Does God really care about my sexual immorality? Does God really care about my gossiping? Does God really care about my coveting? Or maybe you've gotten tired of the gospel. Oh, Eric, all this language about the gospel, that's the ABCs of the Christian faith. I want to press in to something more exciting, something more relevant, something more powerful in our cultural moment. Or maybe life has just gotten in the way. And the kids are super busy, and well, you know, we finally have some money to travel, and yeah, eventually that'll make sense. Eventually I'll get back to church. Eventually I will make this a priority. Well, folks, we fool ourselves into thinking that difficult decisions only need to be made when we reach a crisis moment. But those crisis moments and the decisions that we make in those moments will be patterned after daily mundane decisions that seem totally inconsequential. But over a period of time, day by day, we will face a choice whether to sit under the Bible, to run to the cross, to look to Christ alone. We will begin to shift our gaze to other things. Once we begin to assume these truths, we are already beginning to turn away from them. And the potential consequences are harmful for us, but for the generations that follow us, they are disastrous. What is true of us as individuals is also true of us as a church. Redeemer is nearly 30 years old. Next year will be our 30th anniversary. And churches, like individuals, they settle into middle age. They experience a natural inertia. They move from mission to maintenance. From calling to comfort. One author described the difference between a first-generation 
that believes and a second generation that assumes. He says the first generation does whatever it takes. The second generation does what I'm asked to do. The first generation assumes personal responsibility. That's my job. The second generation assumes, well, doesn't somebody do that here? Don't we have somebody that does that? The first generation expects personal sacrifice. The second generation expects personal comfort. The first generation sees problems and seeks solutions. The second generation sees barriers and finds reasons to quit. The first generation steps out with a bold, dare I say it, even reckless trust in God. But the second generation sits satisfied with the stability of an institution. The first generation fears holding anything back from God. The second generation fears any kind of commitment. Folks, whatever your age, whatever your stage of life, you as an individual and we collectively as a church must choose today to renew our commitment to Christ. To rededicate ourselves to wholehearted obedience. To follow Jesus into a future that He is creating for us. To discover again the wonder and the depth of that deceptively simple statement that is our hope. Jesus saves. He has saved even you and me. What joy that brings. What a celebration that is a called for. What a feast that God has prepared for those who love Him. It doesn't just await in the future. It's brought forward to you today. Let's live in it. Let's pray. Father, it is an all-too-human and natural condition for things to fall apart. It is a miracle when someone turns to follow Jesus. We believe in a God who works miracles, who calls things into being that did not exist, who raises from the dead, who works faith in the hearts of those who hate him, who calls his enemies his friends. Oh God, do that miracle in our hearts, in our children's hearts, in our grandchildren's hearts, for generation after generation, raise up, oh God, a faithful people that call on your name. And blow through this church, we pray. May your spirit be working and active in our midst too so that we don't settle but that we're constantly on the look 
for where you are taking us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.